BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Just a gentle reminder, dear listeners, first Tuesdays, next Tuesday, November 7th, 7 p.m. at Maria's in Bridgeport, 960 West 31st Street. Alderwoman Nicole Lee, Alderwoman Lenny Monahoppenworth will be talking about Asian-American uh, political power in the city of Chicago. We'll be talking about budgets, city politics in general. Two Alderwomen, Alderwoman Nicole Lee, Alderwoman Lenny Monahoppenworth. Uh, and that'll be a great conversation, great discussion. And who knows, maybe I can convince my distinguished guest who's sitting by to come join us as well. So one more time, next Tuesday, November 7th, 7th, first Tuesdays at Maria's in Bridgeport. Maya and I will be there. You be there as well. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, October 31st begins now for this halloween episode ben has a very special treat for you none other than graciela guzman candidate for the 20th district the ben jarofsky show is a presentation of the chicago reader chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of chicago if you want to know where to go what to do what to eat what to drink what kind of shows are going on in the city you can find all that out just by heading to chicagoreader.com and if you like Ben Jarofsky, I know you do. You're listening to this show. All you have to do is go to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky to find even more. I'll spell that for you. It's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Aldermanic Dibs Tuesday, and here's why. Well, 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 ladies and gentlemen, another story in uh, the newspaper about the city's struggle uh, to come up with a solution uh, for the uh, immigrants uh, who are coming in by buses and apparently planes. Black Club broke that story as well. Uh, planes from all over the country now. It's not just Governor Abbott sending him uh, Venezuelan refugees uh, into Chicago from Texas as part of his evil MAGA move just to humiliate Chicago by exposing Chicago for what it is. I mean, folks, that's kind of what's going down. Uh, but it's also apparently officials from all over the country, New York, Denver, whatever, San Antonio, as everybody, as country of immigrants, stick with me, folks, uh, this country of immigrants has t- decided to make a stand against immigration. Hmm, interesting concept. Uh, interesting stand for our country to take. A lot of it, as we all know, uh, is the result of brainwashing uh, by Donald John Trump of most of America, apparently even here in Chicago, home of my beloved lefties and liberals. Uh, the people here have been brainwashed as well. And the story in the, uh, the um, Sun-Times is about a, a second tent camp that uh, Mayor Johnson has proposed. This one going in the 21st Ward of Alderman Ronnie Mosley. A lot of things going on in this particular story. Uh, And one of them has to do with the fact that uh, Mosley has objected to uh, putting the uh, tent camp there at that position, at that site in his ward. Uh, And the uh, city council is going to uh, put it there anyway. 
and so the um, Sun-Times position on this is that this is a violation of a great concept called aldermanic prerogative, in which the alderman or an alderwoman is the boss of a, a zoning uh, and land use in his or her ward. I will never tire of pointing out that alderman prerogative does not exist. And I'm starting to think that maybe people in Chicago don't know what the word prerogative means. That could be something because people keep talking about how there's aldermanic prerogative in the city of Chicago. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't think you you know what the word prerogative means or you wouldn't say that this is an example of aldermanic prerogative. And prerogative means the definition is like a, a right or a privilege that's exclusive to a particular class. So in this case, the alderman uh, has the prerogative over zoning in his or her ward. And I'm like, that has never been the case in Chicago. I will never tire of pointing this out. Like, I'll never tire of pointing out how budgets work and how TIFFs work in the city of Chicago because I find the ignorance of Chicagoans really annoying. Uh, continued year after year. There is no aldermanic prerogative. The alderman or alderwoman does not have exclusive rights over how a land is used in his or her ward. He or she only has those rights when the mayor allows him or her to have those rights or in some cases, when the other aldermen allow him or her to have those rights. Case A, example A in this, the one you should never forget, people, is when Mayor Richard M. Daley, and this is long before uh, my distinguished guest, uh, Graciela uh, Guzman, was following politics. This is years ago. Only I remember this. Told Brendan Riley in the 42nd Ward, I'm going to put the Children's Museum at Grant Park, whether you like it or not. And an Alderman Riley goes, oh, yeah, I I invoked the right of aldermanic prerogative. And then he first he looked it up in the dictionary. Well, let me be sure I know what prerogative means. But by that time, actually, there was a song. Now, I wonder if my distinguished guest is old enough to know the song, My Prerogative. There was a song way back in the 80s. I am not going to. Come on, come on, don't play. <laughs> she knows it. Uh-oh, I'm going to give it the test. And I hope she doesn't look up on her phone. Who sang that song? Yeah, don't look it up. Me. That's what you got me, but I knew it. Come on. Uh, I believe the singer of that song was one Bobby Brown, and I will not sing the song. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, most you know what? Second, most people know that song, but they don't know how it applies. They don't know what it means. Bobby Brown is his vocabulary is far vaster than Chicagoans. So anyway, the the, the title means that uh, aldermen get to say, but they don't get to say. When Brendan Riley said, no, I'm invoking alderman and prerogative to keep you from putting the Children's Museum uh, in Grand Park, Mayor Daly said, take that alderman and prerogative and stick it where the sun don't shine. And guess what? All the other aldermen, or not all the other, but most of the other aldermen voted with Mayor Daly, proving that alderman and prerogative doesn't exist unless the mayor allows it to exist. And yet, time after time, another song from the 80s, time after time. The people that cover the city of Chicago, the aldermen, they go, this is a violation of that sacred principle known as alderman of prerogative. In this instance, alderman of prerogative is being violated by other aldermen. Why? Because, as I was saying, nobody in the city of Chicago wants the Venezuelan immigrants in their ward. I find this absolutely astounding. I know I probably shouldn't be so astounded by this, but I would I know that it's hopelessly and helplessly naive of me to believe that a city of immigrants would have a bigger heart toward immigrants, would be more welcoming to immigrants, 
But Chicago, when it comes to hate, you prove me wrong every time. Every time I said, no, Chicago's not that hateful of a city, people. Chicago is a nice city. It's open to all. And then you prove me wrong time after time. And so the other aldermen are telling Ronnie Mosley, listen, better your award than mine, okay? So he's going, I am invoking alderman of prerogative. <laughs> no tent city in my ward. And all the other aldermen are going, well, we're, we're, we're uh, invoking it in our wards too. So if you had alderman of prerogative, guess what, Chicago? There wouldn't be any tent cities anywhere because all the aldermen would say, not in my ward. In fact, the article in today's Sun-Times closes with one Brendan Riley, remember I mentioned him earlier, the guy who's exhibit A on how there is no alderman of prerogative, uh, maintaining that he's vehemently opposed. I love that, vehemently opposed. Wait, Brendan, let me get this straight. You're not just opposed, you're vehemently opposed uh, to a proposal to have house immigrants at the Hotel Chicago at 333 North Dearborn. I'd rather have it empty than have immigrants there. I'm Brendan Riley. <laughs> I'm not just picking on you, Brendan. All the other aldermen hide. You either hide under their desks or they vote no. We are a heartless city. That's me speaking, not my distinguished guest. I believe we are a heartless city that have been brainwashed by Donald Trump. We won't even own up to it. There should be no reason why the city of Chicago is not embracing a whole housing program that houses Venezuelans, homeless people, Anybody who needs housing, we got, we're such a rich country. We're like funding two wars as I speak. I mean, God, I, just baffles me when it comes to housing, housing immigrants in the city of Chicago. Oh, and then I love it when they say, we're not even doing enough for the people who live here. Well, why don't you do something for the people who live there? They, they always go, I am against housing immigrants in the city of Chicago because we're not doing enough for the people who live here, but I oppose doing something for the people who live here as well. That's the logic of Chicago. Chicago, I'm just pointing out the inconsistencies of the city. And I call it automatic dibs because I think Chicagoans may not know what prerogative means, but they know what dibs means. That's like the first thing they do. I got dibs. I was talking about that. I was Ramon saying, ladies and gentlemen, dibs. You guys, Chicagoans are so weird with your little dibs. I'm going to dig out my snow, and that'd be my dibs. So if you call it automatic dibs, I think people in the city of Chicago go, oh, yeah. No, I know what it means. Oh. Hey, guys, got, no matter what you call it, automatic privilege, automatic prerogative, automatic dibs, it still doesn't exist. You could call it automatic leaves on a tree. And it still wouldn't exist. All right. Enough on that topic. I've exhausted myself on that topic. My distinguished guest, uh, who already has spoken up, Graciela Guzman, uh, candidate uh, for Senate in the uh, 20th District on the northwest side of Chicago, and has proven uh, her vast knowledge of 1980s music by singing My Prerogative. Welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, Ben. Yes. We will work our way uh, to... Uh, the situation with Venezuelan immigrants, uh, because one of the issues uh, that Graciela will be confronting uh, if she is prevails uh, in her race for Senate is um, that issue, very much an issue about how much money the state's going to kick in. And one thing that uh, many of my lefty guests who come on the show, uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Barisisha Lopez, 
and I'm trying to think who else has invoked this. Uh, Rosanna Rodriguez, I see Rosanna. They've all said that the state could do more and help the city out, which I agree. The feds really ultimately are the big player in this, and they should be kicking in the, the money, but it'll probably come to you as well. Fascinating story about Graciela running for Senate in the 20th District. Uh, we'll get into the political ramifications of this and what it says about Chicago politics. Uh, but why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself? Uh, tell it's your first appearance on my humble little podcast. Tell people who you are uh, and how you got to this moment where you're running for Senate. So take it away. Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Graciela Guzman. My pronouns are she, hers, ella. And I am so proud to be a candidate running for state Senate in the 20th district that is based in Northwest Chicago and includes parts of Albany Park, Logan Square, Avondale, a little bit of Irving Park and Bucktown and amongst other communities. Um, and in large part, why I'm here, you know, I, I am the eldest of five kids. Uh, my parents uh, were uh, Came, from, came to the United States, I'm sorry, from El Salvador to escape the Salvadorian Civil War. And I say that because a large part of the community that I grew up in and how I got to share and, and see gifts and how, how this can work in our world is communal care is mutual aid, um, is worlds where we're able to really commingle community and co-governing to make sure that we can all subsist and thrive. Um, and so I was an advocate um, from the earliest of ages. Uh, my parents would put me on my porch to open my neighbor's mail, to translate for my grandfather and other folks in my community. And I got to experience firsthand what systemic inequity looks like and feels like when you're letting someone down and they're literally uh, confronting a situation of life and death that spurned a journey where I got to do direct service here in, in Chicago around the Affordable Care, Care Act and making sure that was implemented. Got to do some amazing work with former state representative Delia Ramirez to pass something called Healthy Illinois, where we got to make Illinois the first state in the country to expand health care to all undocumented adults, at that point 65 and over, and then 55. Um, but I've also done a lot of work around um, the fair tax, around community mutual aid. And in part, I say that because those have been derived from my lived experiences, but really from what I'm seeing in my community, which is a clamor for how it is where we can each have a voice and a vested stake in a government that cares about us in a, hum in a humane and dignified way, where we can continue to push the edges of what government says it can and cannot do. And, 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 I, and I think the beautiful solidarity work that mutual aid and other communities are, to, are doing to help bridge where government cannot. Um, and so I see of playing field with all, where all of those things are at play and where the state Senate um, has a really beautiful opportunity to continue what has been a true progressive legacy. I was the chief of staff for former state Senator Pasion Isaias, um, who um, now works on the fifth floor with Mayor Brandon Johnson as his first deputy. Um, so I say that because a lot of the work that we got to do there together and with so many folks um, here in the Northwest really set upon how we can continue building a better, brighter future, not just for the 20th district and for our state. And that really taught me the power that policy can have to transform, to protect on our people when it needs to protect, to really kind of slam down on, on Act, on bad actors and on behaviors that need to change, but more importantly, how can we use it as a true transformational tool to take on issues and actors that we haven't been able to in the past? And I call myself here like radically present um, to be that voice that our district needs um, and looking forward to talking with you a little bit more about the issues, Ben. 
All right, we'll get into the issues and also the politics. The politics is very fascinating and illuminating about Chicago. We'll get into that. Uh, just a few more biographical questions. Yeah. Uh, did, did How did you find your way to Chicago? I thought you told me, maybe I misheard, that you uh, grew up in Los Angeles. So how'd you find your way to, to Chicago? The 818 area code gave me away, well aware. Um, so yes, I did grow up in Los Angeles, but I came to the Midwest. I was a posse scholar. It was a first generation college student. So I ended up in Grinnell College, um, a liberal arts institution right in the middle of the state out of all places. Um, and talk about places that teach you radical community, a town of 8,000 people, student body of 1,600. So it took everything I've known about how it is that we can relate to each other and put it on steroids. And so um, Iowa made me love the Midwest and that community feel, but I thought, mm, I want something that's a bridge between Iowa and Los Angeles and came to Chicago as an AmeriCorps. So I worked for the Illinois Public Health Association, the IPHA, um, and did a lot of work around community education, around hypertension, diabetes, but most importantly, how it is that we got to roll out the Affordable Care Act. I kind of felt like the Paul Revere saying health insurance is coming. Medicaid expansion is coming. Um, so that's what I got to work on. Wow. So uh, Grinnell College. Yeah, I did see that on the internet. You're on the Board of Trustees. Did I see that right? Board of Trustees. I guess I am. Proud member. And uh, so I'm not being um, facetious when I say what I'm about to say, but somehow or other, uh, you spent a few winters uh, in uh, Iowa and Illinois and decided you'd rather be here than in Los Angeles. What is it about Chicago uh, help me here because I'm so negative in Chicago these days. Maybe you could be a better ambassador for the city than Good. I am. Thank you for lifting up the Arctic tundra because that is for sure a reality, right? But I think <laughs> I gotta say it the progressive community in Chicago, it finally felt like I was coming home. Um, to a place where, um, you know, amongst different ideologies, I could have discourse, folks that were like-minded. And I think when I think about the evolution that Northwest progressive politics have been on over the large part of the 12 years that I've been here, I got here right at the cusp of all of the building that our Northwest has been doing um, to really reinforce the progressive faiths and ideals that we all have, but also to more importantly, really galvanize that through community power, right? So we have an amazing tradition of independent political organizations. We have an incredible, undoubtable legacy of electing folks that are of our community, that speak our values, that are committed to compassionate, real, tangible work and results. And so we've gotten to see that arc throughout my 12 years here. Um, so I've gotten to be a part of not just a vibrant community, but a community that is rooted in that and getting to continue to build a slate of people that represent us. All right. That's a good riff. And since you introduced politics, uh, let me give the what I view as the political backdrop uh, to this election that will be in March. It's a primary. It's a Democratic primary. Uh, Graciela Guzman, my guest, is running against the incumbent, a woman named Natalie Toro. Uh, and here's my analysis, uh, Graciela, of what went down. Uh, and when I'm done, you could either agree with me vehemently, to quote uh, Brendan Riley, disagree with me. I don't just disagree. I vehemently disagree. Or you could say, well, I think it's like that. I'll add a few things. Get your thoughts on it. So here's my uh, take on this. And I thought about this uh, this morning when I was thinking about our conversation. I went back and I read some of the articles because this was really strong in my mind when it was going down. So follow me in this, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm going to start with this point. This is my stipulation. Let's see if Graciela agrees with me. Graciela would not be the challenger in, in this particular race. She would be the incumbent state senator. Had 
Mayor Brandon Johnson allowed Scott Wagespach to continue to be the finance chair of the Chicago City Council. Now, I know a lot of you listeners out there go, Ben, come on, it's a city council. What does that have to do with state senate? Good question, listeners. Very good question. I will tell you, in my humble opinion, what went down. All right, Scotty Wagespach was Lori Lightfoot's handpicked finance chair of the Chicago City Council as the alderman of the 35th Ward. Uh, he did not endorse Brandon Johnson for mayor uh, in uh, the last uh, in the runoff with Vallis. Bad move, Scott. You should have endorsed Brandon. You know it, and I know it. Uh, and, uh, and I think he was neutral. Uh, so Brandon Johnson made it clear that he was not going to reappoint Scott Wagsback as chair of the Finance Committee. Instead, he was going to uh, put his ally, Pat Dowell, in there. Or he was going to encourage the city council to vote for Pat Dowell. Uh, Scott Wagesback did not like that, and so he was open to cutting a deal, and the deal he cut was with Iris Martinez. Now, it's getting confusing, Chicago, what's out there, but I really believe you have the ability to follow where I'm going. I've already given you like three names, but you can handle this, all right? So, Iris Martinez had been the state senator. I've known Iris Martinez, Graciela, since the 90s, okay? She's been around forever, all right? At one point, she was working against Dick Mel, then she was with Dick Mel. It's interesting little evolution uh, that she made. Anyway, uh, very much an ally of Dick Mel, the former alderman. And Iris Martinez got elected clerk of the circuit court. There was a vacancy. She left that uh, position, and uh, the committeeman appointed Christina Pachiona Zayas, and Graciela worked for her. And then uh, Pachona Zayas got appointed by Brandon Johnson. So there was a vac- to be work for him. There was a vacancy. The committeemen gather again. Scotty Wagesback cut a deal with Iris Martinez to put in Natalie Toro, basically. Those are the two biggest blocks of votes in that election. And he did it because he was irritated at Brandon Johnson for not reappointing him as finance chair. And so he said, oh, Brandon Johnson, you want Guzman? Well, I'm voting for <laughs> Toro. That's so classic Chicago. Uh, and so uh, that, in my humble opinion, Iris cut the deal with Scotty Wagesback. And uh, as a result, Natalie Toro, who is a public school teacher, is now the state senator. And you wanted that appointment, did not get it, and immediately announced you were running um, against Toro in Murray, which is uh, next year. That is my interpretation. Do you agree or disagree with me, Graciela Guzman? Go. I think just to build on your interpretation, right, because I think a lot of that is facts, right? Um, that was the dynamic that we clearly walked into the appointment, but I think I want to lift up like what that appointment process was like. Um, we had this incredible presentation of independent political organizations, right, that had unanimously pulled together a people's process. I came out um, universally endorsed in that process. So just pre-appointment, we had already kind of established uh, what community calling was for in this appointment, and it was asking for me to be selected. So that was one piece. To the actual presentation in the room, right, we had um, over 100 folks in the room, which is pretty unheard of in an appointment process, right, for there to be that many that, much, that many folks and community support. But again, we had multiple folks that were speaking to my competencies and what I could play in the community. 
But I think the other piece that I want to lift up because it was special and I'm really thankful and proud of seeing the leadership of committee person, Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa, I think in helping steward a community comment period, um, a, a, a transparent calling of the votes by committee person, for example. And I think that actually further highlighted everything that you called out, right? To what extent this had been baked and cooked before we had even walked into the room. Um, and really, what does that mean when we talk about what is already a very convoluted and hidden process um, for such an important seat. Uh, and uh, so let us just point out, uh, and let me make sure I get this correct. The seat was vacated by Peccioni Zayas when she went to work for Brandon Johnson. Okay. All right. Yes. And she endorsed you to succeed her. Am I correct in that? Yes. Yes, she did endorse me. So we were just talking about aldermanic prerogative. Apparently we don't even have state senatorial prerogative. I'm sorry, Chicagoans. We'll call it dibs so you understand what I'm talking about. We don't even have state senatorial dibs. <laughs> she said, I want Guzman and, and Scotty and Iris said, no, you're getting Toro whether you like it or not. Am I correct in that? You are absolutely correct. And I think, again, you know, we had such an incredible steward for our district and Senator Pozones-Ayas. And I think uh, the appointment ship obviously was different than what Clerk Martinez thought would what happened, right, with, with Senator Petrona Zayas in terms of her alignment with progressive values, her collaborative work with community-based organizations and IPOs. So I say that because it was a night and day difference in terms of how her appointment process went and how this appointment process went. So again, when I think about the will and intent and how truly progressive our district is, that's not who's presently in office, and we have a chance to restore that and put the right person in place March 19. All right, so when you experience what went down, when uh, you were, uh, were, you thought you had it uh, because you had the endorsement of the outgoing state senator, uh, but uh, then you saw the deals that were cut. So I know I, if I were in that situation, uh, I would be like, man, this system sucks. System is so corrupt. Can't stand the city of Chicago. I didn't add it to all the other gripes I have against Chicago. Uh, I think you had took a different, you were more, I don't you had a different attitude toward it than I did. What was your response or reaction uh, to uh, what went down? I'll tell you two pieces. I don't think I've ever been as loved, affirmed by my community as I was on that appointment day. I think we all walked into that situation knowing very clearly that a deal had been cut and we were indignant by that. But our IPO community was like boldly strong, like you will hear us, you will hear who we wanted, and you will hear what the will and imperative of voters is in March, right? So I think like that was present. We felt good. It was Xenia Warrior Princess situation up in there. We felt good and strong, despite, you know, what happened. And I also say that because I think from jump, I understood that the appointment probably wasn't set to come my way because of um, the transactions that had already happened before us, but really the, the legacy that we were about to build on this campaign, which is people powered, right? The the incredible, impeccable field game and tradition that we have in the Northwest IPO community is strong and is salient in this campaign. We are fully aligned, like in terms of my core values, my representation, and what I've done in this district. I am my district. And so I know that district well, and I'm here to earn every single vote in the 20th. That's not necessarily what we have before us. We don't have the same competencies. We don't have the same bio. We don't have the same orientation. It is Halloween. You can try putting a progressive costume on it, but that's not who we are. I know who I am, and I'm, that's what the voters want. Uh, all right. Well, uh, let's uh, get into some of the issues. Uh, 
that are at stake here. Um, and I'll start with, uh, well, I've already talked about immigration. Uh, I make no secret of the fact that I'm a big opponent of Tent City. I make no uh, secret of the fact that I'm very disappointed in how the city of Chicago across the board, including the mayor, uh, have handled uh, the influx of of uh, immigrants. And yes, lefties out there who always get upset with me when I say that, I understand that Lori Lightfoot was awful at it too, and that the city council was worthless during those last six months. So I absolutely understand that. I will always say that, okay? I will always say that. Yes, that is absolutely true. Uh, and I'm very disappointed how uh, the state has worked or not worked with the city uh, to force the feds uh, to give us more money uh, to handle uh, the uh, resettlement of uh, immigrants, particularly since they want to have the convention here, which I wish now I wish Atlanta had gotten the convention, actually, to tell you the truth, uh, for many reasons, Graciela. But anyway, so that's uh, my view of the uh, situation here in Chicago. What part of my view do you disagree with and what part do you agree with? Well, I mean, I think just from jump, like I think um, what's going on around tent cities and the kind of lack of resources that our city is even facing to allow that to be a tangible, tangible possibility really tell us how much more we need to be organizing and pushing for at both our state and federal level. Um, so I say that, right, I, I, I think when you were broadly introducing this topic, you were talking about what state action may or may not happen, right? Like, I think it's pretty clear nothing is going to be happening veto session. There will be no supplemental. There will be no help before the end of the year. And so thinking about what role our Senate and House have in championing a successful package for um, not just our city, but other municipalities that are receiving our asylum seekers is particularly key. It needs to happen. Um, so I think that's a piece of the equation. But really looking to federal government and our federal champions, right? There was um, thinking about the response for Ukrainian uh, folk um, throughout our country um, in comparison with Venezuelans and other folks that have emerged, right? There was almost $600 million that Congress allocated for the Ukrainian response um, in addition to um, humanitarian parole and what that looks like that have drastically changed how Ukrainian folks have not only gotten a chance to be housed and really incorporated within our society, a direct contrast with the thousands of lives that are sleeping on police station floors in tents um, on cardboard, right? And so there is an opportunity and an absolute imperative for the federal government to structure this in a different way than it's been the present conversation. Uh, and so how could you, in your position as a state senator, uh, achieve those goals? Sure. So, you know, I think one from a place of lived experience, um, you know, I mentioned my parents escaped the Salvadorian Civil War, right? So beca because of them, I got to see the arc of what having a comprehensive system of care looks like. And for, for me, when we were growing up in LA, that meant that we had folks that we could seek to, to talk about housing, that I had Medicaid, that they're called Medi-Cal, that there were other state-based resources that my family is a family of seven could seek. And I think when we think about that interplay between federal and state, we have an incredible tradition as a welcoming state about things like our welcoming centers. Um, we've had emergency lines of funding, right, that have opened up to help integrate some of our asylum seekers. But we have a long way to go in terms of what does that sustainably look like fiscal year to fiscal year? What opportunities are that for that? 
that work to be integrated so that it's not just our newcomers, to your point, that it can be inclusive and overarching to produce better environments for folks that have been pre-existing and newcoming. And then moreover, um, what else can we be doing in the system of care besides housing? Because that is absolutely like the rapid response, like this is on fire scenario that we need to cover now. But we also know that they're going to need legal triaging. They need a fully funded school system with bilingual resources that can help them get the heads up that they need in the educational landscape. We need healthcare to address pre-existing things that happened in their journey, but also to make sure that we're preserving public health. So it's all integrated, it's all comprehensive, and that requires, again, looking at how we can think creatively of pre-existing state structures to make sure that we're advocating for that response. And, and while you're advocating for these um, initiatives, what will you do as state senator to assure or reassure black people in Chicago that once again, they're not going to be overlooked? Because the whole history, and you notice as well as I do, of how money gets allocated in the city of Chicago is that essentially the black wards almost are always uh, on the losing end of things. And so that builds some of the resentment that Ronnie Mosley, I mentioned him, the alderman of the 21st Ward, and the pressure they're feeling, their resentment. Uh, that results in people showing up to protest uh, 10 cities. Uh, JT, Jeanette Taylor has also felt some of that pressure. Uh, and uh, Desmond Yancey in the fifth board has felt that pressure. So what could you do to, to reassure the black community of Chicago that just because we're aiding Venezuelan immigrants does not mean once again uh, they're going to get the shaft? No, and I think, you know, I think that's a manifestation and a representation of what the scarcity mindset in our state legislature looks like and how that trickles down to the systemic things that people feel and experience every day, right? So that doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of entire lifetimes and centuries of systemic racism and what that looks like in terms of policy and day-to-day -day offerings, right? So I, I think to your point, we can't be talking about um, rapid response housing, for example, and not talking about how we stabilize housing for all people, including things like um, property tax for relief if you own, including uh, rental health assistance, including housing assistance case management that wraps around mental health needs, and really what does that whole landscape look like, for example. So whether it be housing, healthcare, legal assistance, we really need to be taking a look like how do we remove barriers based on things like immigration status so that they're truly open to all Illinoisans in the way that they should be and how we can make those as easy as possible, but moreover that we actually truly incentivize those being open to folks, whether new or pre-existing. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's the one thing uh, I would say, uh, city of Chicago, you know, was I think it was the fifth ward where they had the discussion just on the specific tent city and somebody asked the question, you know, will, will just uh, regular homeless people in the fifth ward get to live in these tents? And they were told no. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, when I heard that, Graciela, I was like, are you guys insane? Do you not want this program to work? What is it kill you to say yes? Just, yeah, you can, every, it's open to anybody who's homeless. I do, Graciela, sometimes I'm speechless when it comes uh, to how do people run this city of Chicago. Your thoughts, would you open up as inadequate as 10 City is, as bad an idea as it is, as much as it should not be the program, it should be real housing. Would you open up the tents if you were in charge to people who are not uh, immigrants being bused in uh, from Texas? Go. 
I think one is a hot take, tents aren't an adequate, adequate, uh, adequate form of housing for anyone, right? So like, if I think about what I'm really pushing for, I promise it's not tent city. Um, but that being said, any housing that we're offering should be available to anyone that seeks to wish to reside within it. So if we had folks that wanted to live within tents, that should absolutely be something that's an option and that we help resource and make safe. And I'm thankful for um, unions and mutual aids that help support our present unhoused population to make that possible. But it also elucidates like why we need more support for folks that wish to maintain their autonomy while we're they're kind of dealing with a housing situation that really isn't for them just yet. All right, very good, okay. Um, they should send you down to the fifth ward and let them answer that question. Okay. Uh, so let's talk, you mentioned the schools. Let's talk school funding. Um, the Chicago public schools are facing, uh, once again, a big deficit. Uh, I forget the exact amount. I just read the article last week. Shout out Nader Issa in the Chicago Sun-Times to a large degree because federal funding for COVID is uh, drying up. And man, education funding is one of the big responsibilities of a state senator. So what would you do as state senator to use your influence to get more money for Chicago public schools? Sure. So I think one, um, evidence-based funding is superbly important. One, I think to dismantle what has been a historical wrong in terms of funding formula um, throughout our state and what does that mean in terms of educational segregation and who gets resourced and who doesn't. Um, so largely systemic fixes like that are something that's important in my eye to continue advocating for. I think there's also room, right? Like there's always going to be these peaks and valleys in the educational landscape where we need to address it in workforce or other resources. So right now, you know, since we were talking about our asylum seekers, I'm an organizer here at the Chicago Teachers Union at the moment, um, and I lift it up because we are experiencing a huge influx of need in bilingual resources and our special ed population, for example. And so those are actually situations where our General Assembly can work creatively to think about how we can support pipeline, how we can work with ISBE um, and other folks and other agencies to ensure that we're producing the strongest response to an educational need. Need. So in part funding, but also what can we do um, to improve the quality of the life of our students, workforce, staff, teachers, faculty, all across our educational space. Excuse my ignorance, and I apologize up front. What is evidence-based funding? The evidence-based formula. So, yeah, so, so really quickly, right, there's two different kinds of budgeting. A student-based budgeting, um, which is kind of really helped promote um, enroll, like pen penalize on society schools that have suffered from enrollment decline and budget cuts versus something called evidence-based funding, um, which helps promote um, funding to schools that need it the most. So when we really think about how we can leverage um, our funding structure to help ensure that we are taking on educational inequity. Evidence-based formula helps us ensure that we're lifting up schools that have suffered the deepest structural cuts. Okay, so in other words, uh, if you, uh, the old, if, if your uh, money is, is based, if your funding is based on how many students your school has uh, and your student population falls, because of all the disadvantages the school faces, we're not gonna exacerbate the problems that the school has by saying, well, we're gonna punish you for, and, uh, for having a falling enrollment. Uh, so you're moving away from that. Although the irony there is if more uh, immigrants come to Chicago, they'll be going to more neighborhood schools that have uh, suffered from uh, falling enrollment. So we kind of reverse that trend. Uh, but uh, anyway, all right, we can't solve all the problems of school funding in in, in one show, but that's uh, evidence-based funding. All right, so uh, what would you do to guarantee that Chicago get more money uh, in the face of claims that 
you'll be hearing a lot of if you go down to uh, the state house that we're already spending too much money on Chicago public education. Uh, and you mentioned you work for the Chicago Teachers Union. You know, Paul Vallis, as we speak, is writing one column after another, just ripping the Chicago Teachers Union, blaming everything that's wrong in the universe on the Chicago Teachers Union, generally second uh, by the Chicago Tribune. And between the two of them, and Rauner and Kenny G, they've kind of turned the Chicago Teachers Union uh, into sort of like, I don't know, they've like a caricature of itself, which they use to try to get people to vote Republican in much the way they use Michael Madigan as a caricature to get people to vote Republican. So how would you deal with those prejudices that exist, thanks to Paul Vallis, the Tribune, uh, and Bruce Rauner? And I think we have to think about like the arm of the right wing and the, some of the folks that you've mentioned and why it is that they seek to demonize um, one, the union and the union power, but also a common good agenda that lifts up working class people, um, economic security for all, and just generally um, the safety net for all, right? Those are things that are not popular. Those are things that um, they don't want to relinquish and that they don't want us to have. And so when I think, and I'm very proud to be a part of a union that unapologetically lifts up that agenda, um, and it's not a surprise that that's the discourse that they use, but I think it actually continues to elucidate like why we do the things that we do and why I fight fights that I fight, right? Like having fully sustained schools that have a librarian, that have a social worker, that have bilingual resources, that are beacons of their community and the ways that they deserve to thrive, that shouldn't be political. Um, we should all be on the same page about how it is that we need to resource our schools. All right, uh, and one of the big uh, sources for public education, of course, the property tax, uh, and as you'll be aware, when you go door to door, people in Chicago think they're already paying too much in property taxes. In fact, if you come to my door, that's what I'll fill your ear with. Uh, so what's your thoughts about what you could do to continue funding schools uh, and give property tax relief, which sounds like a complete contradiction. Go ahead. No, so I mean, I think we do have to think about the relationship between property taxes and um, school supports, right? So I think in large part, that's the symptom of what having a regressive tax structure in Illinois looks like and not having a new revenue source that is able to fully fund all of the social supports and schools and things that we need. And I lift that up because property taxes have risen 5.4%, right? Given the reports that we've heard in the last couple of hours and days, um, and that's almost $600 million that'll be experienced by homeowners in Cook County. Um, so when we think about that, the there is a relationship between property tax increase and these levies that help support our schools. But again, that's only as a consequence of not having transformational um, economic change by shifting, for example, into a progressive income tax and seeking other forms of revenue and thinking about how we can make sure that systems and that are present seek to uh, make up those gaps on the behalf and the backs of like consumers and community members, as opposed to pushing for corporate responsibility um, or other commercial means um, instead. Um, and so I think that that's that's what I think about. What else can we be doing to make sure that the pie is bigger for Illinois? And uh, you mentioned earlier that you worked on the fair tax, uh, which, of course, was the statewide referendum that was defeated. I think it was 2020 uh, that would have raised the income tax rate on the wealthiest people in the state of Illinois. Uh, and offered an alternative, more money uh, to the per property tax. It was defeated, did not get the threshold it needed to pass. Although whenever I say this, uh, our good friend Carlos Ramirez Rosa always points out to me, Ben, it passed in the city of Chicago. Okay. Uh, he always tells me that. Uh, and uh, so duly, duly noted, Carlos. 
Uh, and but the point is that it just shows this like kind of reluctance uh, to uh, impose pr progressive rates uh, and go to a more fair way of raising money um, for all the things we need. How you deal? How are you going to deal with that? That psychology, you know, of uh, of like no, I'm no to taxes, even if the. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh at Chicago. No, so, Even if the taxes help you, the tax raise helps you people, you still voted against the Northwest side. How, how do you deal with that psychology? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's two pieces, right? And I think lessons learned from the fair tax campaign, right? Like income taxes, they're scary. They're difficult to understand for most folks in the population, right? And so even when it benefits the majority of folks in the income tax bracket, that was really, really hard to understand, right? And I think for me, it just shows like why we need to be on longitudinal way, be having these conversations more often, right? Um, but I think the other thing too, to, to really kind of delegate and kind of connect to like your initial points just around like, the environment in a Chicago where we are a city of immigrants and born of immigrants, but yet have these sentiments, right? Like we tend to fear the unknown. Um, there isn't a collective we mentality. There is an I mentality. And I think for a lot of folks across our state, in our city, in our district, they're still navigating day-to-day -day survival. They're navigating situations that are extremely stressful from their property taxes to rising healthcare costs um, to um, just like what's going on on their streets every single day, right? And it kind of keeps you in that place, in that box that says, I may want to care about other people, but today it's just me. And if you only care about the me day after day after day, and someone comes to you and says, there's a radically different way that we can think about what solution looks like, what transformational policy looks like, you're going to go, yeah, no, I'm good. As long as I'm good, I'm good. So, I mean, I think that to your point is actually about narrative change and, and, and further dialogue that we really need to be having in our community about how we, what best at stake we have in a collected solution, um, what does a, a system of dignified care look like, and what role do we each have to play as voters um, in asking our electeds to do that on our behalf. Yeah, no, I'm thinking about when you were going on that uh, riff, I was thinking about investing kids. Uh, I talk about this on the show a lot, which is the, uh, the program. I actually do not know uh, if it's going to be continued. I've, I've lost track of where it stands right now in the legislative process, but that's the one where the state gives a tax credit uh, to rich people who donate to a scholarship fund uh, to help uh, kids who need scholarship get into a, a pay for private tuition. Uh, I have absolutely no objection whatsoever to parents choosing to send their kids uh, to private schools. Uh, and uh, but I object to this particular program, and I just think that rich people, if they want to contribute, uh, that should make the contribution without the tax credit. Uh, but that is a classic case of people feeling, a lot of people feeling, well, you know what? The system has failed. I can't go to a public school. My local public school is not adequate for what I think my kid needs. I would choose to go to a private school, and I'm just looking for a break, and I can't even get a break. And it's like, but meanwhile, there's all this money for this, that, that, and the other thing. And I think that's the mindset that you're getting at, like where people just make it just this, in, in many ways, it's just an honest assessment. I'm not getting anything out of this system. This thing helps me. I want it to stay. And it's popular as a result, at least in polls. So what's your position on the, that tax credit for uh, scholarships and just how it plays into the psychology that you were talking about? 
Sure. No, um, I stand against in, um, investing kids. I think it needs to sunset. Um, I think thinking about um, kind of the, the nature with which we need to be funding our schools, anything that detracts from an ability to fully fund our public school system is something that needs to be um, analyzed, researched, and in this instance, allowed to sunset. Um, so that's where I stand. And to your point, you know, I think um, we have to take a look again at how particularly crafty um, the right wing is in utilizing um, different data points to try to cut into people's fears, right? So when we think about the parochial nature of like some of the reasons why black and brown folks have to go to these schools, right? There's a certain element of like nostalgia and connection, right? That we can understand while at the same time really taking to people the facts of what that has meant. Um, it's a catch-22 in terms of like funds lost in, in those areas, but also for future opportunities opportunity. Um, and I think um, that's not an easy solution, but it certainly does have to start at, again, like really resetting facts. And what we do know is that programs like Invest severely detract from our ability to be able to fund a public school system like our city deserves. Yeah. Uh, and one more last time, come on, rich guys, you don't need the tax credit. Just make the donation. You don't need the tax credit. And tip more, by the way, when you go out to eat, all right? <laughs> all right. So my, enough to the rich guys. Um, all right. Uh, this is uh, state Senate related. Uh, the, the nursing home uh, bill legislation that sometimes has been all over this. Uh, President Don Harmon, you're going to have to deal with him if you're the state senator. Uh, he's the head of the Senate, a Democrat out of Oak Park uh, and a suburb just to the west of Chicago. Uh, and uh, he <laughs> it turns out he's gotten quite a bit of contributions uh, from the nursing home uh, lobby. Yeah, the nursing home industry, the Chicago sub I think it was Bob Hergert has been all over this story. Shout out sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I'm just smiling at this thing because I, I could actually make an argument. They want to switch. This, this, this provision would switch the way nursing homes are taxed so that they would be uh, residential as opposed to commercial. It would pay a lower, uh, at a lower rate and pay less in taxes. But if they pay less in taxes, then uh, Ben, Graciela, and everybody else pays more in taxes because that's how the tax system works, ladies and gentlemen. When Ed Burke, your favorite alderman, 14th Ward, used his powers to get Donald Trump taxes lower than Trump Towered, the residents of the 14th Ward were dumb enough to elect that Burke year after year, paid more in taxes. So that's how one person gets a break, somebody else pays more. That's how it works. So your Senator Guzman, this is a tough one. And uh, you got to come in and vote in this thing. And uh, Harmon's going, hey, kid, come here. You know, uh, I really want, I don't know. I actually have no idea if that's how a president talks to a legislator kid. I don't know if they call you kid but you would be a, a, a rookie. I really want you to vote this way uh, because I think it's the right thing to do. That's my Don Harmon invitation. Uh, so which way are you going to vote on it? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll categorically looking at decisions, right? Like specific to nursing home care and like what I think is really important in this conversation, right? We want skilled care. We want high wages for our caregivers and our workers. We want to make sure they're supported staffing, right? And so what I think has actually been really interesting about this conversation is like why the veto is even taking place, right? And I think we're starting to see a shift in this conversation now. Um, you know, this provision was act added kind of like last minute um, into an omnibus around property taxes stuff. So there was this kind of like feeling, this sentiment that it had been kind of like snuck in there. So there wasn't really this opportunity to have broader discourse and questions around Around, like what is its role? How does it function? Um, and I think there's, uh, I think this actually signals, right? Like should the nursing home industry 
um, be in trouble and have, you know, the need for something like this, that there should be the ability for the General Assembly to transparently go back and forth and understand the mechanisms that are causing that and to be a part of a collective solution. Um, so I say that because I think that's where this is probably headed um, as we continue to track this conversation. I think it espouses a really important sentiment. And I know for me as a consumer, I'm curious about what continued needs a nursing home industry has. Like I'm aware that they received close to about $700 million in higher Medicaid payments very, very recently. So for me, I go, what else? And is it really truly more money or do we need to talk about how you're transforming your system of care altogether? Um, that would be the question that I would be asking as a senator if we were, were to go back and forth on this debate. That is a great point. I can give you a lot of credit for that point because follow me what I'm about to say. Uh, yeah, you can have like a legitimate, <laughs> I'm just laughing at the concept. You can have a, like, a legitimate discussion of an issue which are pros and cons on the issue. Should we change the formula uh, by which nursing homes pay taxes, property taxes? Maybe they do need the assistance. You can have a legitimate debate. Uh, you can have democracy, small d democracy, where there's hearings and people, economists come in, everybody talks, you think, or you can cut a deal at the last minute when nobody's paying attention. Uh, and uh, we seem to be choosing option B, uh, which seems to, uh, to the point you're making as opposed to enlightened democratic debate. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on that one. All right, Graciela, before I let you go, any final thoughts you want to make uh, about your campaign, anything you want people to know? The floor is yours. Take it away. I think I'd leave us just on, like, one final piece, right? I think we've talked a lot today about just kind of the legacy in the Northwest around progressive politics. I think... Um, my hope and wish that I'm kind of like the next piece in that alignment in our Northwest. And I think the last piece, you know, that I kind of bring about is like why in this era it's so easy for folks that were never progressives or espoused themselves with our values or ever would have sought our policies or connection with us to all of a sudden want to put that label on without any other obligation to our people, to our community, to the issues. Um, so I say that because I have been me for as long as I've been me. Um, I think my issues speak for themselves and I hope to kind of continue to make my case with voters. There's a reason I'm endorsed by every single elected in the Northwest and it's not just because I'm a progressive. It's because I'm a progressive that's done work um, with our community, has um, done life-saving um, legislative work, has done community-rooted mutual aid, has like been out in our community really getting to understand it and what's gonna what it's gonna take to transform our district. So I say that because that's not easy work. Um, that's not a little costume that I'm putting on. That's not a decision that I made overnight one day. Um, it is rooted from a very firm place and the hope that I have um, that we can transform this district and our state for the better and that we can stay rooted to the progressive ideals that will not only center and lift up humanity and dignity of our people, but radically bring around the solutions that we need to, so that we can all have every day. So that's me. That's why I'm doing this. And that's why I ultimately hope that I can count on the support of listeners like you um, to help support this candidacy in this race. Um, so folks can learn a little bit more about me. My website is gracielafor20.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Um, and just really appreciate you, Ben, for the time and space to be able to have um, such an open conversation across so many issues today. So thank yeah. you. We really covered a lot of issues. Uh, we, did. we did, man. I'm exhausted. And you got me to sing too. And, you know, that's how it went. I got you to sing. Wait a minute. I actually do not think you did. You sing? Did you sing? 
because you were like my prerogative. So I say, I mean, I gave I gave you a snippet. Any more than that, you know, we have to pay. But that's cool. You sing a lot better than I do. That's for sure. Uh, Bobby Brown made that a hit. Graciela Guzman is re-releasing it. She'll be covering it. Uh, her her single will be out next week. All right, Graciela, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. And I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. I think Graciela agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And I really mean it. I'm putting that out there. Peace and love, people. Ceasefire right now. Take care, everybody.